Our Lord, this is indeed a wonderful weekend. We thank you so much for the gift that you've given us in our nation. Thank you for giving us a place where we can enjoy freedom of worship, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, where we can gather together as your people without fear. Lord, I pray that we would never take this opportunity for granted, that we would, would treasure it. Pray, Lord, that you would minister to us today as we now open, our, open your word. Help us to understand uh, today's passages. Help us to make personal application to our lives. And then to understand how to take these truths with us into the public square. Lord, might you change us today, conform us more into the image of your Son. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So back in 1969, a young woman from Texas learned that she was pregnant for the third time. She was single, living with her dad, and working a dead-end job, and she decided that she wanted to have an abortion. But in Texas, abortion was only legal in cases where the life of the mother was at stake. And so this young woman hired a couple of attorneys to try to get the law changed. Her case went to court in 1970, and eventually it worked its way all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court. And on January 22nd, 1973, in a 5-4 decision, The Supreme Court ruled that abortion on demand was a constitutional right. This case is known as the Roe v. Wade decision. With that one decision, virtually every law in every state respecting abortion was overruled, and the abortion industry was given birth. In the 49 years since then, more than 63 million abortions have taken place in the United States, which represents about 20% of all pregnancies. That comes to about 2,548 abortions every day in America, or 106 every hour, or about 34, or excuse me, one abortion every 34 seconds. Now, less than 1% of these are due to rape, incest, or to preserve the life of the mother, which means that more than 99% of them are simply done for birth control. But then last weekend, the U.S. Supreme Court announced that it was overturning its Roe v. Wade decision. Writing for the majority, Justice Samuel Alito wrote this, quote, Roe was egregiously wrong from the start. Its reasoning was exceptionally weak, and the decision has caused damaging consequences. Then he concluded with this, It is time to heed the Constitution and to return the issue of abortion to the people's elected representatives. Friends, that's exactly what has happened. Abortion on demand has now been stripped of its status as a constitutional right, And now the American people will decide what they want to do with this on a state-by-state basis through their elected representatives. Of course, for some, the court's recent decision has been an occasion for fear 
and for others, anger. And for still others, it's been an excuse for violence. Over the past week or so, a number of churches and pregnancy resource centers and businesses have been vandalized, including one in Kalamazoo, right in our neighborhood. My friends, while our heart certainly goes out to those who are experiencing turmoil because of this recent decision, we Christians do not share their view of the ruling itself. In fact, for us, this court ruling came as welcome news. It was welcome news. For 49 years, the Church of Jesus Christ in America has been praying for this day. We've been working toward it. Now it is here. I never thought I would see this day, but it is here. And though this ruling certainly has political implications, for us it's really not about politics at all. For us, this is a matter of core conviction. Because you see, we Christians are a people of the book. A book which we are convinced is inspired by God. And this book is unequivocally pro-life. In fact, the author of this book introduces himself to us as, quote, the living God. And in this book, God tells us that his mission in the world is to call out a people to rescue them from the curse of sin and death and to give to them life in exchange for death. Becoming a Christian is referred to in this book as experiencing a new birth. And in the Bible's final chapters, as we look at the glories awaiting all of the children of God, we're told that that on that day, there will be no more sin, no more sickness, no more death. God is going to conquer it all. This book also affirms the intrinsic worth of every living thing, and that's because all life derives from the living God. And this book especially affirms the value of human life. And friends, today I want to walk us through the scriptures to help us understand why human life is so precious, why human life should be protected at every stage of development, and then why, finally, we should celebrate this recent court ruling. The first truth we find in the scriptures is this, that every human life is precious because every human life bears the image of God. Every human life is precious because every human life bears the image of God. And in fact, we learn this truth in the Bible's first chapter. Genesis 1 verse 27 reads, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then the truth is reaffirmed in Genesis 5, verse 1. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. What all of this means is that God created the human race to be fundamentally different from the rest of the created order. God gave to the human family a rational capacity, a moral capacity, a spiritual capacity, even a relational capacity, which corresponds to him and makes us very much unlike the rest of the created order. God created us to have a relationship 
with him. His, his stamp is upon each one of us. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 even tells us that when God first created humanity, He breathed some of His own life into the man. And that's how He became a living soul. To be human is to have something of the very life of God coursing within us. Friends, this truth holds even after humanity's fall into sin. And so, we read in Genesis 9, verse 6, a post-fall passage that the image of God in man explains why murder is always wrong. You see, when you attack another human being, you are attacking the image of God. That's why it is so heinous. James 3, verse 9, another post-fall passage, explains that the image of God is why even cursing another human being is wrong. That is, verbally expressing your contempt for another human being. When you do that, you are indirectly showing your contempt for God whose image that person bears. By extension, it also explains why abortion on demand is wrong. It is an act of violence against an image-bearer of God. But then it goes beyond that as well. The Scriptures teach us that not only is every human life an image-bearer of God, but also that every human life exists by the will of God. It exists by the will of God. Deuteronomy 32, verse 39, God declares, I am He, and there is no God besides me. I make alive. And in Genesis 30, verse 22, it says, God remembered Rachel. And God hearkened to her, and God opened her womb. God is the one who who brought life to her womb. And then Job 10, verse 12, Job declares, You, God, have granted me life. See, friends, no life is an accident. If you are here, it's because God expressly willed that you should exist. Every human life that exists is here by the will of God. God wanted you here. And this is true, by the way, regardless of the historical circumstances surrounding your life. Whether you were conceived through an act of immorality or even of criminality, it was ultimately God who decided whether a life would be created in that womb or not. If life was put there, it was put there because God willed it to be so. And so each new life should be received as a gift. Each child conceived in the womb should be enthusiastically embraced as a special work of God and as a stewardship of God. To do otherwise is to set ourselves against God and show contempt for His good gifts. You know, the Scriptures teach us something else about human life. Number three teaches us that every human life is also the special handiwork of God. Listen to Job 10, verse 11. It says, You clothed me with skin and flesh and knit me together with bones and sinews. Job 31, 15 says, Did not he that made me in the womb make him? And did not one fashion us all in the womb? In Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14, You formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Now, isn't that remarkable? 
See, we think we understand the physical process that leads from, from conception to birth. But what all of these passages teach us is that in the womb, there is also this supernatural work taking place. God himself is in that womb. And God is weaving together that fetal flesh. God is knitting together the soul with the body of that child. It's his personal work in the womb. You'll notice the use of personal pronouns in these passages. Job declared, you clothed me with skin and flesh. King David in Psalm 139 says, you formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Right from the womb, that that child is an identifiable person. They have their own soul. They have their own DNA structure. God is relating to that child on a personal level. The scriptures say that this God even calls his children to their life's vocations from the womb. That's what the prophet Jeremiah said about himself. He said, God called him to be a prophet from the womb. That's Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 5. And Isaiah 49.1 says that the Messiah was called to his work from the womb. That verse says, he, God, named me by name. God had a, has a name for the child in the womb. My friends, all of this applies to every human life, regardless of its physical or cognitive abilities. So we read in Exodus 4, verse 11, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? So even the child in the womb with the, the so-called genetic abnormality, is blind or, or deaf or crippled or something else, even that is a work of God. Why would God allow that? Well, I think we find our answer in John chapter 9. There Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples and and they're talking about a man blind from birth. And Jesus says, do you know why God made that man blind from the womb? Wasn't an act of judgment. No, God did it so that his glory might be put on display through that life. In other words, so that God's strength could be manifested through this human weakness. God has a special purpose for the the lame, the deaf, the crippled, the cognitively impaired, just as he has for so-called normal people. He calls them from the womb too. He has a special purpose for them. He wants to show his glory and grace through their lives. And so, friends, this is why we must embrace every single life, not just the healthy, but the sick too, not just the intellectually gifted, but also the developmentally challenged, not just the athlete, but also the cripple, not just the elderly, but also the unborn. They are all persons. They are all the handiwork of God, and God has a special purpose for each and every one of them. Then turning to the fourth point now, we also learn that God has a special place in his heart for children. Scriptures teach us this. God has a special place in his heart for children. And I think this is because children are so vulnerable. God is just the kind of a being whose heart moves toward the helpless. Those who are in desperate need of the goodwill of others. God moves toward such people. And so in Mark chapter 10, verse 14, Jesus, the Son of God, says this, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, 
for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And in Matthew 18, verses 1 through 6, the disciples ask Jesus, so who will be greatest in the kingdom of God? And here's what Jesus did. He found a little child, and he put the child in the midst of his disciples. And then he said this to them. He said, truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never even enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he adds this, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. So who will be greatest in this coming kingdom of God? Well, the one who comes to God like a child, because to them belongs the kingdom of God. He says, you want to be great? Become like one of these children. And he says, better for you to have a millstone tied to your neck and be cast into a sea than for you to be guilty of bringing harm to a child. Even to lead a child to embrace sin. In other words, you don't even want to know what God has in store for a person who would hurt a child. That's what he thinks of kids. And you know what else is interesting about the Bible? It makes no distinction at all between the child inside the womb and the child outside the womb. They're all the same in God's eyes. And so in the Old Testament scriptures, the Hebrew word yaled is used of children outside the womb as well as inside. Simply compare Genesis 21.8 with Exodus 21.22. And in the New Testament scriptures, the Greek word brephos is used of children outside the womb as well as inside. Just compare Acts 7.19 with Luke 1.41. You see, as far as God is concerned, the only difference between the life inside the womb and the life outside the womb is the difference of location. That's all. There's no difference in God's eyes when it comes to personality or identity or the worth of that individual. They're all children as far as God is concerned. And so God has a special place for them in his heart. My friends, in light of all of this, how should we live? Well, that takes us to our fifth point. Friends, in light of all of this, as the people of God, we need to stand up for the vulnerable. We need to speak for those who cannot speak for themselves. We need to safeguard the lives of the unborn. Proverbs 31 verse 8 says, Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Now, friends, if that doesn't apply to the unborn, then I don't know who it applies to. Speak for those who cannot speak, it says. Isaiah 1.16, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Zechariah 7 verse 9, thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. James 1.27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction 
and to keep oneself unstained from the world. That is, not to buy into the world's philosophies. My friends, this is how we're called to live. To have hearts which are moved toward the vulnerable. Those who cannot speak up for themselves. To move toward them in compassion and love. To reach out, to be their voice, to be their protectors. This is exactly how Christ lived his life, is it not? Our Lord Jesus was the very embodiment of life. His name is synonymous with life. And as we look at our Lord's earthly ministry, we see that he embodied this philosophy of life every single day that he was among us. He ministered to the outcast. Matthew eleven nineteen says, Look at Jesus, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, a man who moves toward society's outcasts. He also ministered to women. So you might recall the story in Matthew chapter 9, where there is a woman with a devastating gynecological um, problem, and nobody can help her, and she is ceremonially unclean. But Jesus helps her. He heals her, and he says to her, your faith has made you well. Jesus also ministered to the hungry, and so we read in John chapter 6 that after hours and hours of teaching a, a great crowd, he looked around and realized these people must be starving at this point. And so he provides bread and fish for all of them. And then in Matthew 9, 36, we're told, quote, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. As we've seen, Jesus also had a special place in his heart for children. So he said, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Friends, do you know who else he ministered to in their time of need? All of us. He ministered to us too. And so we read in Romans chapter 5, verses 6 and 8, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. Verse 7, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person someone might dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So you see, humans have tremendous value. We are image bearers of God. We exist by the express will of God. We are each one of us the special handiwork of God. And yet the scriptures teach that we are also in a fallen state right now. We all have this sin principle within us. We are sinners by nature as well as by choice, and this has separated us from God. You know what else the Bible says about that? That there is nothing we can do to remedy that on our, on our own. We are helpless in that sense. Indeed, because of our inherent depravity, we don't even want God's help left to ourselves. But what did God do? Did he leave us in this Tragic condition, no. God in His love and grace sent His Son into the world. His Son voluntarily came as well, gave up the glories of heaven, robed Himself in human flesh, lived among us for more than 30 years, a perfect sinless life, endured all the maladies that we endure here in this cursed world of ours. And then, at the end of His life, He volunteered Himself as a substitutionary sacrifice. 
making atonement for our sins on the cross, bearing what we owed God on His own shoulders, so that all who come to Him now in repentant faith receive everlasting life. That's what Christ did for us. See, my friends, our book is a pro-life book. Our God is a pro-life God. Our Lord Jesus is a pro-life man, God and man. God calls us to live by a pro-life philosophy too. He calls us to be a voice for life, all life, from conception to natural death. Now concerning the specific matter at hand, Roe v. Wade has been overruled now, but there is still much work to be done. As I said, this now goes back to the 50 states and to the American people. It also goes back to our representatives in Washington, D.C. Now they will decide the fate of the unborn. As these debates are raging and you have an opportunity to express your voice and your vote, what side will you be on? Will you be on the side of the abortion industry? whose goal is to maximize the number of unborn lives that it can kill for the sake of financial profit? Is that where you will stand? Or will you stand on the sidelines, choosing to say and to do nothing because you don't want to be known as a controversial figure? Perhaps you don't want to alienate friends or coworkers. Or will you be on the Lord's side, Will you, through your voice and your vote, choose to stand for human life? Will you affirm the value of every single image bearer of God? Will you open your homes for adoption and fostering? Will you be a voice for life? Will you give of your resources to the mother who is scared and angry and thinks she has no option? Will you show her your support? Will you volunteer at the local pregnancy resource center? Will you offer peer mentorship of the young person, the woman and the man, struggling to know what to do about an unplanned pregnancy? Will you help to parent this child, to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Will you show that you value all life? What side will you stand on? Dear God, give us the courage to stand up for life. Amen.